Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Lord William Kelvin said this, if you study science deep enough and long enough, it will force you to believe in God. Kelvin, who died in 1907, helped lay the foundation of modern physics, the second law of thermodynamics, and the absolute temperature scale. If you've ever studied the sciences, you know Fahrenheit, degrees Fahrenheit, degrees Celsius, but the degree Kelvin scale is one that approaches absolute zero. And just this week, there was an exciting announcement that the scientists investigating heat in the absence of heat have been very close to approximate absolute zero. Absolute zero is the temperature at which it is theorized all motion in a molecule in an atom would stop. Am I the only one who's excited about that? <laughs> that is amazing that the motion inside of an atom would stop, that the orbiting electrons circulating around at high speeds would actually come to a halt. It's amazing. Light at that temperature is theorized to become a liquid that can be poured. The implications of absolute zero in scientific application, if it can ever be achieved, uh, are immense. <clears throat> but he looked at the geophysical determination of the age of the Earth. He looked at uh, his work in hydrodynamics. And Lord William Kelvin was a firm believer. Um, he was a devout believer in Christianity throughout his life in attendance uh, with the people of God at the fellowship of the local body was part of his daily routine. He saw his Christian faith as supporting and informing his scientific work as evident of all of his addresses in the Christian Evidence Society, which he helped to found. Being a Christian does not mean that you give up your intellectual capabilities. Being someone who believes in a young earth does not mean that you have jettisoned all reason. Today, as we talk about creation and time and old earth timing and dating, we're going to be talking about the history of dating. Much of the controversy between evolutionists and creationists concerns the age of the earth and the fossils. Evolution, depending on it as it does on pure chance, requires an immense amount of time for these random opportunities to gather and approach the integrated complexity that we see even in the simplest living things. So as we look at the history of dating, geology as a separate field of science with systemic studies is quite young. As I mentioned earlier, it's less than 200 years old. Prior to that time, folks as far back as ancient Greece noticed fossils in rocks. Many believe that they were legitimate remains of things that had turned to stone and early Christians attributed fossil evidence to the flood. Robert Hooke, an English physicist circa 1700, confirmed by microscopic analysis that fossils 
were the mineralized remains of living beings. At the same time, a Dutch anatomist described the process of superposition. Superposition is that layering effect where materials are layered one upon another, generally through the effects of water. The French scientists come to Buffon in 1788, imagined the earth as a hot molten ball that had cooled to his present state over a 75,000 year period. His latter writings, his later writings, actually brought that figure to three million years. The nebular hypothesis first appeared in 1796 by another Frenchman, Pierre Laplace. Now, Pierre Laplace, with the nebulatory theories, was one that you've all seen, where our galaxy was created by an explosion, and things were spinning, and eventually they condensed, formed, and cooled. That was as early as uh, 1809 that that was brought to a biologic extension over a long period of time. For over 100 years, geologists have attempted to devise methods of determining the age of the Earth that would be consistent with evolutionary dogma. At the time of Dar Darwin's Origins and Species was published, the Earth was scientifically determined to be about 100 million years old. By 1932, it was found to be 1.6 billion years old. In 1947, geologists firmly established that the Earth was 3.4 billion years old. And in 1976, some of you were not yet alive, the Earth was discovered to really have been a date of 4.6 billion years. So, over 100 years, the age of the Earth doubled every 20 years. If that trend continues, the Earth will be 700,000 trillion, trillion, trillion years by the year 4000 AD. We old. <laughs> we old. Now that prediction is based on selected data and certain assumptions that may not be true. Just as the history of dating has shown that dating has advanced over time, these data and assumptions can be a problem with every method of determining the age of the Earth, the age of fossils, even the age of living things. It can become a bit of a dating game. So let's talk about the method. The method, the primary method scientists use for dating the age of the Earth is radioisotope dating. Proponents of evolution publicize radioactive dating, or excuse me, radioisotope dating as a reliable and consistent method for obtaining absolute ages of rocks and the age of the Earth. Consistent assertions in textbooks and the media has convinced many Christians to accept an old Earth at 4.6 billion years old. Radioisotope dating, also referred to as radiometric dating, is the process of determining that age from the decay of radioactive elements. Well, the most common method of this dating is using specimens that are potassium argon, uranium thorium lead, and strontium rubidium. All three of these decay processes have half-lives 
that are measured in billions of years. Billions of years. All right? Again, these three methods are the most common methods used. Now, radioisotope dating is primarily used to date ignatius rocks. Ignatius rocks are those rocks which have formed from lava flows, hot molten materials that cool and solidify. Type of ignatius rocks include granite and basalt. I know, I know the old joke, most rocks are taken for granite. Sorry. I'm a dad. Radioisotope dating clock starts when a rock created by volcanic forces cool. Again, ignatius rocks. During the molten state, it is assumed that the intensity will force any gaseous elements, like argon, to escape. Once the rock cools, it is assumed that no more atoms, like argon, can escape, and then any daughter element, the parent element in this case would be potassium, radioactive potassium, which decays into inert argon. So it's assumed that when it's cooled, all the argon has escaped, and then the parent element, the radioactive potassium, will degrade in stages until it is the inert form of argon. Then you open up the rock, you test what's there, and you can determine the age of the rock based on how much radioactive potassium is there and how much argon gas is in the rock. So, sedimentary rocks, which contain most of the fossils, are not commonly used in radioisotopic dating. Those type of rocks are comprised from particles from rocks that have been transported primarily by water and redeposited somewhere else. Sedimentary rocks include sandstone, shale, and limestone. We live in a Bedford house, a Bedford stone house, a limestone house. A lot of buildings, bank buildings, public buildings, built out of limestone. Again, that's a sedimentary type of rock. Now, none of the methods that I described earlier, potassium to argon, uranium to lead, strontium to rubidium, can be used directly on fossils or the rock, the sedimentary rock in which they're found. All radiometric dating, with the exception of carbon dating, must be done on ignatius rocks. Again, the rocks that come from a volcano. Rocks solidified from a molten state such as lava. So those clocks begin keeping time when it begins. This is a spectrophotometer, or a mass spec. This is the type of instrument that can be utilized to analyze what is the content of the parent element and then the degraded daughter element. So in the case that we were talking about potassium, radioactive potassium, potassium-40, down to the inert state of argon. Let's take a loose, closer look to understand this a bit more, shall we? Give you an example, and I believe that this is on your page. You have an example here of carbon, the carbon atom. Radioactive dating is based on a simple fact about atoms. If an atom has too many neutrons in its nucleus, it is unstable, and it will change to a stable form. 
to data sample, scientists will calculate how much time would be required for the unstable atoms in the sample to change to a stable form. So, most carbon uh, atoms are stable because they have only six or seven neutrons in the nuclei, the center. The carbon-12 and carbon-13, as you see in that image. Okay? But some carbon atoms have too many neutrons and are unstable. Carbon-14. In your picture there, the uh, protons have a little positive sign. The neutrons uh, are just the solid elements, and the electrons have a negative charge indication. You're tracking with me so far. Everybody's good, right? We're going. We're moving forward. Excellent. Some atoms found in nature are unstable and spontaneously change or decay into other kinds of atoms. For example, uranium will radioactively decay through a series of steps and it become, until it becomes a stable element lead. How many of you have seen the, uh, the app, face app, where you can take a picture and then it can see what you'll look like in 20, 40, 60 years? Anybody have that on their phone? Um, Caleb Patton took a picture of me once and then showed me what, it was, what I was going to be like when I was old. It was kind of frightening. <laughs> kind of frightening. Well, here's, here's a face app picture of what happens to uranium after uh, 45 billion years. Turns to lead. Again, it degrades from uranium-238 down to lead-306, an inert material. And again, these are found in nature. Uranium will, is, will radioactively decay through a series of steps and it becomes the stable element of lead. Now, the original element, as I said, is the parent element, and the final product is called the daughter element. Scientists use observational science to measure the amount of a daughter element within a rock sample and determine the present observable, use the present observable rate of decay to determine what the original state was. So, we need to look at those assumptions. There are certain assumptions that are used. Dating methods rely on a science called historic science. It cannot be observed. It determines the conditions present when a rock was first formed. There are three critical assumptions, and those assumptions are written up here. First, the initial conditions of the rock sample are accurately known. The original number of stable and unstable atoms in the rock are known. Second, the amount of parent or daughter elements in a sample has not been altered. This is a closed universe idea, that there are no outside forces which have impacted the sample to change either the amount of the parent element or the daughter element. Stay with me. Good stuff. And then number three, the assumption is that the decay rate, or half-life, of the parent isotope has remained constant since the rock was formed. So you see here the hourglass. The hourglass illustration is used to illustrate this assumption. If you look at the top, 
In the hourglass illustration, we're using the uranium to lead decay. It is assumed that all of the atoms in the rock as it was first formed are all uranium and radioactive. As you go through the narrow part of the hourglass, that's defining the rate at which there's a change from uranium to lead. That's assuming that it's staying the same. And then on the bottom, it's assuming that all of the lead that is in the hourglass came through that narrow portion of the hourglass. The daughter atoms were all produced then by radioactive decay. Okay, let's look at that again. Assumption one. The original number of unstable atoms can be known. We're going to assume how many unstable parent radioactive uranium atoms existed at the beginning by how many parent and daughter atoms are existing in that rock today. Assumption two. The ones that fall to the bottom in this hourglass illustration reflect the assumption that says that the only lead you find in that rock are atoms that have gone through the process of decay. There were no lead atoms to begin with in that rock. It was all uranium. Again, it's an assumption. We're not mocking the assumption. We're simply stating this is the assumption utilized in radiometric dating. And then assumption number three, again, we're looking at these three assumptions. When a geologist tests a rock sample using a mass spec, he assumes all the daughter atoms were produced by the decay of the parent since the rock formed. So he, if he knows the rate at which the parent element decays, he can calculate how long it took for the daughter elements that are measured in the rock today to form. Those are the assumptions. Well, what if the assumptions are wrong? What if those assumptions are wrong? What happens if radioactive material was added to the top bowl? Or what happens if the decay rate is changed? Well, we do know that radioisotope dating does not always work because we can test it on rocks of known age. There are a group of scientists that formed an organization called the RATE group, R-A-T-E, the RATE group, which stands for radioisotopes, and the age of the Earth. This group of eight research scientists, all more highly qualified than I will ever be, set out to investigate these assumptions, commonly made in standard radioisotope dating. The findings were significant and directly impact how geologists and evolutionists assign dates of millions of years. A rock sample from the newly formed 1986 lava dome from Mount St. Helens. How many of you were alive in 1986? This happened within your lifetime. Okay? It was dated using the potassium-argon dating. Remember, radioactive potassium, parent, goes to argon, the stable daughter element. Okay? The newly formed rock, 1986, gave ages for the different materials in it of between 500,000 and 800,000 years. 
these dates showed that a significant element, the argon, was present when the rock solidified. So assumption number one is false. In that top hourglass that we looked at, it is not true that there were only radioactive elements. There were stable items in that top bowl. Mount Nagariu in the North Island of New Zealand is one of the country's most active volcanoes. Eleven samples were taken from solidified lava and dated. Rocks were dated from eruptions in 1949, 1954, and 1975. The rock samples were sent to a respected commercial laboratory, the Geochron Laboratories in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The ages of these new rocks ranged from 270,000 years to 3,500,000,000 million years old. But we knew that these rocks were less than 70 years old at the time of testing. It's apparent again that assumption number one was false. When radioisotope dating fails to give accurate dates, it gives us a certain level of question, a certain level of mistrust. We have to say, is this accurate when we don't know the true history of the sample? And like I said at the beginning, radiometric dating, radioisotope dating, is a science that is executed and done by scientists who are seeking to do their best work. These assumptions, however, are faulty. Now, the example that I've given concerning potassium argon and argon-argon dating is illustrated by this volcanic lava flow. <clears throat> what happened was the lava was flowing over dry land and then got immersed in seawater. And when that happened, the cooling rate changed. That cooling rate changed, which means that the samples are going to have different concentrations of parent element and daughter element. It is not a closed system. Uniformitarianism, which is the belief that all things are stable and do not change, is a major presumption within evolutionary dating, geologic dating. But this group of scientists, called the rate group, were able to demonstrate very practically how this impacts our understanding of how recent events can reveal some of the poor assumptions. So, interesting fact, Potassium-40 is radioactive with a half-life of 1.277 times 10 to the 10th years. Uh, if you eat a banana, which contains radioactive potassium-40, uh, you will be radioactive. Now, not to worry, you actually have to eat 239 bananas a day. So if we put you in that hourglass, with 239 bananas a day. We're going to find a lot of radioactivity. The dating techniques, unfortunately, are inconsistent. Lee Strobel, who, as you know, was a uh, degreed uh, um, lawyer, came up uh, in his book, 
his book, The Case for Creation, with this statement. One of the most interesting things I've learned as I've, done, as I've gone on this journey of scientific discovery has been that you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to acknowledge the existence of an intelligent designer because today's science is pointing more directly toward a creator than at any time in the history of the world. And brothers and sisters, I truly believe that this is the case. Not only in Lee Strobel's experience, but in my personal experience as well. Having been a spoon-fed evolutionist coming out of uh, the school system I came out of, not being taught any other alternatives, as I began to study the biologic sciences and realize the intricacies of creation and becoming more and more aware of what the scriptures have to say reliably about our origins, it became very much aware as I studied science more that this could not have happened by random chance. Numerous evidences that evolutionary dating methods are not reliable have been seen. Studies on submarine basaltic rocks, lava from underwater volcanoes, from Hawaii, where Deb lived for how many years? Four years. And we are where we hope to go in uh, May, not on a uh, geologic uh, expedition, but just to get some more Hawaiian shirts. Uh, these elements, these samples that were formed at 1801, about 200 years ago, were dated by potassium-argon method and discovered to be 160 million to almost 3 billion years old. One of the most obvious problems is that several samples from the same location often give widely divergent ages. Apollo moon samples were dated by uranium, throntium, lead, and potassium-argon methods, gave results that varied from 2 million to 28 billion years. Lava flows from the Grand Canyon Rim, which erupted after its formation, showed potassium-argon dates a billion years older than the ancient basement rocks at the bottom of the canyon. So the rocks which were formed and then fell or flowed into the canyon, there was a discrepancy of a few billion years. So we have to look at that and say, okay, how do, we, how do we work with this? The average layman thinks that geologists have infallibly estimated the antiquity of the Earth. They have not. And their candid writers admit this. Look at this quote that you have on your paper from Dr. Stephen Morbath of the University of Oxford. He writes, in true candor, no terrestrial rocks closely approximating the age of 4.6 billion years have yet been discovered. The evidence for the age of the Earth is circumstantial, being based upon indirect reasoning. The most common dating method that we hear about is that of carbon dating. <clears throat> the method is that illustrated here. What happens is uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is impacted, some of the atoms become excited, gain and lose neutrons and electrons. Some become unstable, which is C14, carbon-14. That atom is ingested or absorbed by plants or animals. 
And then when you test the remains of those plants and animals, you can use the presence of C14, the radioactive element, remember the illustration that you have on your paper, when it goes from C14 to C12, the stable element, you can tell by the quantities what the age is. It's a form of radiometric dating that is unique and it's the only method used to date once living carbon-based organisms. Carbon-based life forms metabolize carbon and absorb radioactive carbon-14 into their living cells. When the life form dies, the metabolism process stops, but the remaining radioactive carbon-14 begins to decay. And as the total amount of carbon-14 decreases over time, the remaining carbon-14 is used to estimate how long the specimen died, or how long, how long the specimen lived, how long ago the specimen lived and died. It stabilizes quickly and has a short decay cycle. That means in only 5,730 years, half of the original assumed radioactive material will have stabilized and become carbon-12. There are problems with carbon dating. There are problems with carbon dating. The change in the magnetic field can affect it. It's known that the Earth's magnetic field has changed and is still decaying today. That means there are lower levels of carbon-14 in the past that would equate to older ages of samples when compared to modern carbon-14 dating. There are shifts in carbon-14 production. Today, there are only about 21 pounds of carbon-14 made each year in the atmosphere. It's known that Radiometric carbon, or carbon-14, is forming 28 to 37 percent faster than it is decaying. We're still unsure what is causing the change. Previously, the belief was that the rate of decay is constant. Well, that may not be true. That discovery certainly seems to challenge the theory of a stable, non-changing environment that some call uniformitarianism. The implications have far-reaching effect. There's also a reservoir effect. This is pretty neat. The reservoir effect occurs with mollusks, shellfish, and other animals that live in the water. It happens when old carbon is introduced into the water. The water that has been upwelling from deeper surfaces and there's that sort of cycle that happens in water. Have you ever noticed in lakes that you can have a bloom as the temperatures change? What happens is the material, because of the change in the, in the heating and the cooling of the water, you'll have a cycle of materials coming up from the bottom and being recirculated to the top. Well, this is called a reservoir effect, which can impact the living creatures in the water because they'll absorb materials coming up from the surface. The carbon dioxide in it comes from the atmosphere before the water cycled. Thus, the carbon in seawater is a couple of years, a couple of thousand years old when it was in the atmosphere and radioactive car content reflects that time. Plants incorporate the old carbon in them as they grow. Animals eat the plants, Seals, seals, in this example, eat the animals, and the old carbon from the bottom water is passed on through the food chain. And we're going to see a sample of that in just a moment. There's also the expiration date. Radioactive carbon dating 
is actually of little use to evolutionists. There are several reasons. No rocks, first, no rocks and relatively few fossils contain measurable quantities of carbon of any kind. And second, because of the short half-life of carbon-14, the radiocarbon date can only date specimens to 50,000 years of age. Well, let's talk about some of these examples. The shell game. We have had many living creatures that have been dated at incredible years. The shells of living mollusks have been dated to about 2,300 years old. That's one old clam. Talk about a Methuselah mollusk. Living snails were dated as being 27,000 years old. That snail in your backyard had time to come from San Francisco to visit you. 27,000 years old. There's a limit to the accuracy of these dating methods. I refer to the seals. There's a situation where freshly killed seals have been dated at 1,300 years old, and seals that were mummified and dead only 30 years were carbon dated as old as 4,600 years old. Radiocarbon analysis of specimens from mummified seals have been rated between 615 and 4,600 years. We know that our Antarctic seawater has reflected what we talked about earlier in the reservoir effect. When you have the turnover that happens at seasons, and older material circulates in the water and gets absorbed by plants and animals. And there's also a principle called biologic magnification. And uh, those of you who are a little bit older will remember the problem of DDT and how DDT was outlawed. And the principle of biologic magnification was seen then because what would happen is the DDT would be absorbed by insects, insects would be eaten by small animals, those small animals would be eaten by larger animals, man would eat those animals, and the DDT was actually magnified and collected through that cycle. And so the reservoir effect can impact that as well. Well, so these seals have a problem. And there's also a mammoth problem. Mammoth and remains of mammoth. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the remnant of a mammoth. I mean, that's basically a fully intact skin. It's amazing. A mammoth has been dated between 29,500 and 44,000 years old. And again, if you use the same sample, you can get different dates from the same sample. Dinosaur bones as well have been discovered to have soft tissue and even red blood cells. Now, these are animals that are believed to have been extinct for millions of years. How can red blood cells or soft tissue exist? It doesn't make sense. This is a great quandary in dating issues. 
Triceratops, Hydrosaur, and Tyrannosaurus rex digs have uncovered unfossilized dinosaur bones. This is a real issue. People have been fired over talking about this fact. Scientists who pointed out, and these are not creation scientists, but these scientists that have pointed out, hey, I've got soft tissue here in the horn of this triceratops. I've got a femur of a Tyrannosaurus rex, and I can get genetic material out of it. This is a real issue. That material should be dead long ago if it had been buried and become fossilized millions of years ago. But it points to a much younger age. So, I've thrown a lot of information at you. You've been very patient. Only one person has fallen asleep. I, I greatly appreciate that. I'm going to pinch them at the end of the service here so that they wake up. Now, presenting these problems, these anomalies, does not eradicate the need for scientific endeavor. We want to be intellectually honest on both sides. We want to say, yes, there are particular problems. There are problems with the assumptions. There are problems with the testing. We need to be humble about this, and that humility can be very helpful in talking to our friends and saying, you know, there, there are some problems here. How do you explain? Bring it back to the person that's an ardent evolutionist and sees you as a throwback to the Neanderthals and wonders why you don't have calluses on your knuckles from when you walk. How do you explain this? This really throws it into question. How can living creatures be tested at being tens, multiple tens of thousands of years old? How can we have remains of fossils that has living tissue that is still viable for genetic testing? You know? You're not, you're not bringing this up to play gotcha. You're bringing this up to question the assumption and to point to the reliability of God's word. Does that make sense? You know, we're not playing, we're not playing games with people. This is an eternal issue. And we want to point people to the reliability of God's word. And so the carbon bottom line is this. Many materials presumed to be old or even older than dinosaurs are rich in carbon-14, giving dates of only thousands of years and not millions of years, okay? So petroleum, coral, petrified wood, ocean fossils, diamonds, and coal. Here's something completely different, all right? We have all of these issues, but there's a little inn in England, and if you've ever had a chance to travel to England uh, and go to some of the country inns, I would highly recommend it wonderful, filled with such character and history. In Salterford, England, there's an inn called the Anchor Inn Cellar. Actually, the Anchor Inn. The Anchor Inn has a cellar, and that cellar has hundreds of very long mineral stalactites that have formed over the years. By the way, if you don't know the difference between stalactites and stalagmites, little mnemonic device, 
the stalactites are holding tightly to the ceiling. If that helps you, helps me anyway. But the issue is that these stalactites have been forming from the floor, from the ceiling to the floor, and the pub was originally built in 1655 and later rebuilt in 1795. So they've only had like 220-something years to form. The difficulty, and this is another dating method, is that similar limestone formations have been found in caves all around the world and are supposed to be ancient. Guided tours report such formations as being hundreds of thousands to millions of years old, evidence that the earth is certainly much older than the biblical timeline of 6,000 years. So these formations are very interesting, but there have been evidences of stalactites and stalagmites growing at the rate of 8 inches per year because there are other conditions that are not known. There are different rates of water and absorption and evaporation. So you have to be very careful with the assumptions that are used in dating. Ancient dates always rely on assumptions. So, there are other dating problems, like the inns. So, question for you. In our first lesson, we talked about historic reliability. We talked about how the Genesis account is seen as something that the other authors that refer to creation see as reliable. Jesus himself saw the creation account as reliable. The second lesson, we talked about how there are Christian alternatives that seek to compromise or agree with these evolutionary and geologic dates. And the third lesson that we have today talks about how there are issues in dating. So, what do you bring from this lesson? Each lesson I ask, what are you taking away from this? One thing. You know, like I said, a lot of, lot of information here. We want to just take one thing away that's helpful for us as we talk with people, not only to inform our faith and increase our faith, but how can we use this to help talk to other people? Father, we do thank you and praise you for this time. Thank you that you are wiser than all of us, those who believe in your word and those who do not. And Father, I pray that your glory would be seen, that the preciousness of the truth of your being the creator and reality that you are not only our creator, but you are also Lord Jesus, our redeemer. Lord, that that truth would ring through our ears and, and shine through our lives, that we would communicate with others well, that we would be strengthened in our faith, in your word, and that you would use us to communicate truth and the accuracy and validity and beauty of your word to others. Thank you for this time. Be with us as we join your people in worship. Lord, that as we take the Lord's table, we'd remember the Lord Jesus and celebrate the forgiveness and redemption and freedom that is ours through him. And we praise you for this time in Christ's name.